Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the chair in front of you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now for the word of the Lord. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and share the Word of God with you. Uh, if you've noticed, we have beautiful flowers to my left and right on the stage, and th those are actually left over from Mike and Jenny's wedding that they had last night. And so maybe about a dozen of us were here, um, and about 170 or something on Zoom. But they, they're joining us here today. Mike and Jenny, do you want to stand, and we'll just congratulate you here. Because we couldn't do it in person, right? Congratulations. Let's pray before we start. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to an interesting passage this morning. Um, in the middle of Apostle Paul giving instruction on marriage, here is a section on social movements and institutions. So you might be wondering, what is going on here? And before this passage, he talks about marriage. And after this passage, he talks about marriage. Why this insertion right here? And does it have any bearing on the passages before and after? And of course, the answer is yes. And I might add, what an apt study for us to do in these current times. 
And the question that we are posed with and answered in this passage is, are Christians social revolutionaries? Are Christians social revolutionaries? And we see that here in this simple passage, it will contain a clear and succinct answer to this question. What truly amazes me, and similarly from what I've heard from many of you, is how comprehensive the Word of God is in dealing with issues that the church faces. The Word of God, utterly authoritative and without error, is truly complete in revealing God's will for us and for salvation. It is sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. As a church, as we have believed and trusted in God's instruction and promises, we are being transformed and equipped for every good work as Christ's disciples. This brings joy to the believer. But on the flip side, it brings dread to those that reject the truth, as it is God himself who bore witness to the truth through his Son, Jesus Christ. And now the Holy Spirit testifies of Christ's salvific work to us so that we may believe, and in believing, we may have life. This is why if you are able to listen to God's word, it is like breathing fresh air into your lungs. It's as if God has breathed his breath into us and saying, let there be life. It's now the people of God who love to hear God's word, not because it's some ritual or tradition that gives us cozy emotions like telling stories around a fireplace, but because it is God who is breathing life into us. And with that, we come to this passage. After Paul gives the standard for marriage statuses, and we see that the Bible does have a lot to say on what it means to be single, married, how it views divorce and widows, what is required in all and each status. And we'll see that the Bible will talk about the standards of a wife, a husband, even children. You see, the Corinthians were having all sorts of issues surrounding the subject of marriage. There were so many different social pressures that were coming at you from so many different groups. I laid out a number of them last week and Pastor Paul the week prior. And so let's say you were single in the city of Corinth when you were saved. Social pressures would come from those that were Orthodox Jews and they would come telling you that you must now get married. On the other hand, Let's say you were married when you received Christ in Corinth. The Greek ascetics would put pressure on you to become single. Marriage wasn't a thing for ascetics, and they advocated for divorce. They would even say things like, if you have children with an unbeliever, you would have half-breeds for children. And so we ended last week's sermon with the principle that whatever your marital state is, 
whether you are single or married, you ought to use it to give glory to God. And this week's passage builds on last week's because it starts with the word only. It's a conjunction that ties the passage in with the one before. Because you ought to glorify God no matter what state you're in. And so here is the principle. Christians should not be concerned with changing their outward circumstances. Christians should not be concerned in changing their outward circumstances. Hearing this, you might think that this is something so countercultural because we thought our call was to be countercultural. So it's cultural to be countercultural, and yet this is countercultural to our countercultural call, if that makes sense. But that's exactly what the Corinthians 2,000 years ago thought so as well. They believed that Christianity was about social reformation. That Christian life is not about social reformation. It is not about social reformation. It is about spiritual regeneration. It is about being born again. And if you read the passage from last week, you would get the feeling then that Christianity was maybe, at the time, people thought was disrupting social relationships and the ties that we have in this world. People were using Christianity to do these very things. Marriages were breaking up. Single people were being stigmatized for being unmarried. And as we will see referenced here, even slaves were getting stirred up. In the ESV, the Greek word doulos, as we've read today, is translated as bondservant. Because the word slave in today's society has such a negative and adverse connotation to it, and I might add, rightfully so, the translators of the ESV thought it would be better to use the word bondservant to translate doulos. Slaves in the ancient world were different than slaves in modern times. But I would also add, not entirely, not entirely. We're not comparing apples and oranges here. Slaves were slaves. So while there are nuances to the differences in slavery from 2,000 years ago to 500 years ago, for instance, um, In the ancient world, it was a method to relieve economic distress for a temporary time when the Torah was written. When the Old Testament was written, it was an economic relief method for a temporary period of time. But by the time it got to Roman slavery, it was pretty savage and cruel. A century earlier, before this was written, Spartacus and his fellow slaves rose up against their masters and tried to gain their freedom. But the Romans, they were ruthless in their suppression of slave uprisings. And yes, slave uprising happened all the time in history. So what did the Romans do to Spartacus and and those that rose up against them? They crucified thousands of rebels along the Appian Way. And that's the road leading to Rome. Thousands. No doubt, this would have then been on the mind of many in Corinth as well. 
especially if you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you've heard that the gospel is about freeing those in bondage. And Paul is telling the Corinthians here not to turn Christianity into a social movement. Why? Because, because spiritual regeneration can happen in any kind of social setting. For Paul to have to say this, you can imagine the incredible impact Christianity must have had in the early and ancient church. But if we use Christianity as a justification to overthrow the government, then we are like every other political institution in the past. Our generations, our generations, obsession with being on the right side of history when it comes to social reform makes me wonder then if we know any history at all, let alone even what the right side is. Because Christianity can exist, and it does exist, by the way. Christianity can and does exist in any kind of social setting you can think of. It can and does exist in communist China. It can and does exist in the Ayatollah-led Iran state. It can and does exist in any kind of social setting. There is no social setting that Christianity is not compatible with. There is no setting then where you first have to perform social reform before the gospel can be accepted. Now, this is important that we get to this because you will now see statements on your feeds that from would-be Orthodox Christians who will say things like this. And this is very relevant because I am sure many, if not all of you, have seen this. If you don't stand with us in BLM, you can't stand with me as a Christian. There are a million things wrong with this, but here is what it is essentially saying. Social disagreement is cause for spiritual separation. That's what it's saying. And these would-be leaders have gotten left and right flipped. They put the cart in front of the horse, all the time frustrated why the cart isn't going anywhere. And eventually, they only end up blaming and cursing the opposition for their lack or their so-called lack of understanding in the matter. If only you would just adopt this, we would be in paradise. And Stalin went on to kill 20 million of his own people. But yes, these new Christians in Corinth were also moving in what they understood to be Christian understanding and putting it into the social realm. And there is a social aspect to Christianity. Of course there is but it's not in the way that they thought. So if a wife became a Christian, if a wife became a Christian, what should she do? Be a better wife. If a husband became a Christian, what should he do? Be a better husband. If a citizen, employee, boss, child, slave, you name it, what would they do once they became a Christian? But the Bible does exhort us to meet the needs of the people, to do justice, to feed the hungry, promote goodwill to all the world, especially those inside the house of God. We are to seek the right 
and honest thing. We are to speak the truth of God in an unjust society. But the Christian understands that before there is any outward change, there must first be an inward change. The heart of the matter is that it's a heart matter. It's spiritual regeneration. And our hearts become regenerated when the gospel is preached. I thought John MacArthur on this topic said something quite um, significant. And that he would say this about gospel infiltration in society. He would say, it's, like, it's not like dynamite. It's like leaven. It's not like dynamite. It's like leaven. And if you look at all the great social changes that have happened in society, it wasn't through an explosive event. But it was like leaven slowly making its way through society. The gospel is the seed, and it grows the fruits of the gospel, which begin to affect society at large. And so what's the gospel principle stated here in this passage? This principle is stated three times. It's stated once, then an illustration, once more, then another illustration, and then one more time. One time is enough. Twice is emphatic. Three times is unshakable. Maybe he had to say it three times because he knew how thick-headed we are. And he says it in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Maintain social status. That's simply put. Maintain your social status. If you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. It means not to use Christianity as an excuse to change your social status. Again, in verse 15, God has called you to peace. There is the broad principle right there that undergirds this one. And to explain what he means by this, to explain what he means by this, because he knew that it would be tough, not just for the Corinthians, probably he knew it would be tough for everyone after he moves on to the first illustration. Mind you, it doesn't mean that, you know, if you're 13 and you get saved, that you should stay single forever. Uh, but some of you have asked me about this in regards to singleness. And so here's Paul's explanation. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. At first glance, you might wonder, um, how can you uncircumcise yourself? This, seem, this illustration seems a little irrelevant. Paul, you seem a little kooky. Until you read the Maccabean account. In the first Maccabean account, chapter 1, verse 15, or even if you read Josephus' historical account of some of the Jews in those days, see, Greek thought had penetrated the Jewish community, and especially during Antiochus' reign. And so Antiochus' reign, he brought a lot of Greek thought. Uh, the Maccabees revolted during this time. And if you were here listening to the Daniel series, you would have heard a little bit about it. And there was actually another group. There were the Maccabeans, and there was actually another group. Some of the Jews wanted to get along with the Greeks. And it is recorded in these two places that 
the Jews tried to remove the scars of circumcision so that they could go to the gymnasium. If you don't know what the gymnasium is, it's, it's a very highly respected life in the Greek world. And it is, it is recorded that the Jews wanted it so bad that they would do this to themselves. They would try to remove the scars uh, from themselves so that they could um, get along with the Greeks. And they begged the Greeks to put in a gymnasium even in Jerusalem. Uh, if you don't know what the gymnasium and circumcision have to do with each other, it's because the gymnasium is like, like the Olympics. They're the games. And people competed in the games completely naked. Uh, they had to throw everything that hindered off of their bodies. That included clothing. I mean, even Olympic athletes try to do that now. They, they, you know, they wear these like one pieces that are really tight to your body, so it's kind of like you're naked. But the Greeks went all the way. It's like just completely naked. And so when the gymnasium fever reached the Jews, they wanted to participate in it so badly. They wanted to show we can also participate in these amazing games. We can lift like you lift, run like you run, do all these activities just like you guys. And then when they were naked, the Greeks would look at them and they looked a little different because they were circumcised. And the Greeks mocked and ridiculed the Jews for their appearance. So what did the Jews do because they wanted to fit in? They would undergo a procedure to remove those scars. So this actually was happening. It's not kooky. These things were actually happening. People that were Christians, that were originally Jews, wanted to fit in with the world so bad they would do what it took to fit in. In other groups, when a person was converted, perhaps a Greek person, there was a strong Jewish tradition that would suggest if you wanted to have the full blessings of God, you needed to be circumcised. And they would even push it on the Greeks who became converts. But Paul here, when all this was happening, Paul here goes, stay as you are. Stay as you are. Why? The Jews who would get uncircumcised would be detestable to whom now? If you were a Jew and you became uncircumcised, who would you now become detestable to? To other Jews, to actual Jews. But if you were a converted Jew, if you were a Jewish person that, were, that was converted to Christianity, who would be the most likely group you could evangelize to? Who would a Jew be most equipped to convert? And the same with the Greek. Who would the Greek be most equipped to evangelize to? Wouldn't it have been the Greeks? And so the issue isn't whether you're circumcised or not. The issue, Paul gets to it. It's whether you can obey the commandments of God. In focusing on the rituals, they, saw, they lost sight of not only their advantage to minister to those that they were most equipped to minister to, they lost the sight of the primary, which is obeying God's commandments. And so Paul now returns to the principle from verse 17 again to verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition he was called. Call is referring to the divine call of conversion. 
and it relates to the external circumstances in which they were in. Paul is saying, remain in it. And now for the second illustration. This is, as Sam has said multiple times, this is a hot one, okay? Paul turns from social divisions, perhaps masked with religious tones, to now an overt social division. In verse 21, were you a bondservant or slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't worry about it. You might think, what? And that may seem at least, in the very least, a little careless for him to say. But don't be concerned about it in the Greek has to do with anxiety. Don't be anxious about your social status. He is reminding everyone, even those that might be on the lowest end of the economic and social status, what their primary status is. It's their spiritual status. I've heard even recently about how the Bible supposedly gives approval to slavery, like in passages um, like Ephesians 6, or Colossians 3, and I want to say, no, it doesn't. But they would say, what about Ephesians 6 then? Doesn't it say slaves obey your masters? Or Colossians 3, 23 to 24. So let's, let's get to it. And I think it's important for us to be at least a bit versed in these, uh, in these ideas that people are promulgating against Christianity. In verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And this was said to slaves at the time. Passages like this were used by slave owners in modern history to keep their slaves obedient. It's true. But you have to read the next verse or two, at least, please. And it says this in verse 25, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. What? And then he goes on, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. See, instructing slaves and masters to behave in a certain godly way doesn't mean approval for the system. It doesn't. But then you might ask, because people have, doesn't it then give tacit approval by not speaking out against it, though? And the Bible definitely speaks out against evil and wicked behavior. I told you this is going to be a hot one, right? But no matter what social status you have, and if it's in wickedness you act, it's the Bible that warns you that you have a heavenly master that will judge you without partiality. If you look at history, in fact, it's the Christians who abolished slavery in modern times. William Wilberforce, a strong evangelical, led the abolition charge in British Parliament. And you can read about him, I'm sure, but I, I want to stay on this example. It was Abraham Lincoln who masterfully debated Stephen Douglas in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates that you probably read in school. And the debates were against slavery as well. He's the one that issued the Emancipation Proclamation because of the truth that he could not get away from, that the Founding Fathers also could not get away from, that all men were created equal, 
and yet these laws weren't reflective of this truth. But as great as these men were, whether it's Wilberforce or Lincoln, they were actually humble, and they knew who was really moving society and culture. It was not them. Let me read you an excerpt from Lincoln at the end of the war, the Civil War. At the end of the war, he wrote to a newspaper editor in Kentucky, and this is Lincoln writing. I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. Now at the end of three years struggle, the nation's condition is not what either party or any man devised or expected. God alone can claim it. Whither it is tending seems plain. If God now wills the removal of a great wrong and wills also that we of the north as well you of the south shall pay fairly for our complicity in that wrong, impartial history will find therein new cause to attest and revere the justice and goodness of God. Leaders in the position that really made lasting social changes knew that God was the one moving and changing it. That's why it's not just a simple phrase. It's not a redundant phrase. It's not a platitude to say God is sovereign. It's the most powerful thing that we can believe. And slavery, of course, wasn't just concentrated on the West, right? If you are of Korean heritage, like many of you are, you know that Japan's use of Korean women as comfort women, comfort women meant they were kept as sexual slaves, is real. That's a real part of your history. Slavery, in fact, is still rampant in the world today. It's still rampant in the world today. The UNODC, which is the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, has reported just last month that even because of, not, not, not because of COVID, like this has affected it in a negative way, but because of COVID, it has increased human trafficking around the world. Because of COVID, slavery has gone up in the world. And by some estimates, people are now saying we have more slaves now, today, in 2020, than any other time in history. The Global Slavery Index has, us, has it at 40.3 million slaves. So what about Paul? What is he saying about all this? How does he personally feel? And if you really want to know how he personally felt, you need not look further than the short letter to Philemon. Philemon was probably a very wealthy man in Colossae. He had a slave named Onesimus. But Onesimus wanted to be a free man. So what did he do? He stole some things from Philemon and he ran away to Rome. And it was while he was mingling and living life in Rome that he met someone. Onesimus, the runaway slave, met this man named Paul. Paul led Onesimus to Christ. And Paul really deeply cared for Onesimus. He even said in the letter to Philemon he was useful, and in the Greek it meant that he was enriching Paul's life. His life enriched his life. So possibly one day Onesimus told Paul, 
that he was a runaway slave. And so what did Paul do? I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't say slavery was a rotten system and for Onesimus to stay with him. He didn't write to Philemon and say, let all your slaves go. What he tells Onesimus is to go back to Philemon and hands him a letter. And you're like, what? Because if Onesimus went back at the time, if Onesimus went back to Philemon and, you know, he got caught, there was a great chance that Onesimus could have had the letter F, or in some cases FGV, branded on his forehead for escaping. F or FGV stands for fugitivus, uh, which meant you're a fugitive for escaping, and that brand will be on your forehead, and it will be on for life. There was a chance that even that could happen. But what does Onesimus do? He goes back to Philemon anyway. And people have criticized Paul for not saying anything about slavery, and indeed he does not make a commentary on it in this letter to Philemon. But Paul goes to the deepest and most primary issue. The major issue is faith in Christ. And he makes this appeal. The word appeal is the same appeal word used in this book, chapter 1, verse 10. But he makes this appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus as his brother. Paul would pay back any debt he owed and reminds Philemon that he even owes, Philemon owes Paul his life. Treat Onesimus as your brother, and I want to remind you that you owe me your life. And tradition has it, Christian tradition has it, that Onesimus was accepted when he went back. That would have meant that not only was his debt forgiven, but he was received back in an elevated status. See, the major issue, the major issue is faith in Christ. People have lost what is primary throughout history, especially in recent days, and have attached Christianity with a social movement. And every time that has happened, the message was lost. When the gospel is preached given time, social change does happen, but reverse that. And not only does social change not happen, the message gets lost. People still to this day rage and rebel against this truth that Paul gives us. And Paul takes it even a further step. He takes it another step that goes even further by giving us now this paradox. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there, let him remain with God. If you're a slave and you're called, you're actually a free man. If you're a free man and you're called, you're a slave. What is he talking about? This paradox is pointing to whether you're physically bound and spiritually free or spiritually bound and physically free. This paradox, this paradox points to this bondage idea. What are you free from and what are you bound to? 
What are you free from and what are you bound to? For the Christian, it's the joyful reminder that we are free from sin and bound to Christ. This is why externals should not cause us anxiety. The primary, the spiritual is what is necessary and what flows out from it will bring peace. In the end, if you are free physically, but spiritually in bondage, what does it matter? And likewise, if you are bound physically, but spiritually free, what does it matter? In verse 23, Paul repeats what he said in chapter 6, that we were bought with Christ's blood. And he goes, don't go back into bondage. Now, does this mean spiritual bondage or physical bondage? I believe both. This is why the parenthetical statement in verse 21 shows how immoral Paul thought slavery was. This is what led all the church fathers to also think the same. You think, um, you know, William Wilberforce just thought of this on his own. No, the great church father John Owens had meetings with them, taught him the Bible, and then he knew this is wrong. However, as immoral a system as it may be, Paul's role was to show how Christians can and have thrived under any social system because that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. Paul ends with the principle of final and third time. Wherever you are right now, God may have you there for a reason. Just because you're a Christian does not mean you need to change your social status, your economic status. In fact, the better question is, how can I serve him where I am right now? This is why Jesus didn't go to Rome. He went to Jerusalem. He didn't make his visit on earth into a political movement. It was a spiritual one. What we focus on, what ultimately changes the world, isn't social revolution. It is worship. Only in obedience to God will we see the changes necessary in ourselves and then those around us. It is Jesus who changes the heart one at a time, thereby changing villages, even nations, and the world. I want to end with this little illustration. About 200 years ago, uh, missionaries from Wales, England, went and wanted to spread the gospel. They ended up in northeast India, and um, this region was known to be very, very savage. There were tribes, and this was a headhunting tribe. Um, the social custom was that headhunting made you look more honorable. So if you were a young man in these tribes, in these northeastern Indian tribes, if you were a man that you wanted to get married, the more heads you had on a pike outside where you lived meant the more of a man and more strong you were. These were the kinds of tribes that these missionaries from Wales would go to. They would sacrifice their life to just spread the gospel to them. 
there was a, a Welsh missionary that went and he went to this one particular tribe. No one believed him except one man. One man, that's it. In this tribe, one man believed him. His wife and his children decided to believe. When the chief of the village found out about this, he was enraged. He was enraged. He said, you take back that faith in Christ. And then this is what he said. And this is what's recorded in tradition. I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. He got so enraged at the man for not renouncing his faith, he ordered his people to cut down this man's two children. And as the boys were dying on twitching on the floor, and he said to him again, Will you now deny your faith? You lost both your children. Do you want to lose your wife too? And this is what he said. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. No turning back. And this led the chief into even more fury. And he killed even that man's wife. And he goes, I will give you one last chance to renounce your faith so that at least you could live. And this is what he said. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And he was killed. And he was killed. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who ordered these deaths started to get moved by the man who did this. He said, why would this man risk and let his wife and two children and even himself die for a man who lived on a faraway land in a continent that was different from us 2,000 years ago? There must be some kind of supernatural power. I want that power too. And in spontaneous conversion of faith, he said, I too belong to Christ. And when his villagers heard, from, heard these things from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. You go online, <coughs> excuse me, you go online, you look up the Garrow people, and they go, the main religion now is Christianity. We think that we can do all these things with social reform and movements, but it's wrong. It's never been the case. The way hearts have been changed is through God. It's spiritual regeneration. That's why people of God never lose fact that you know the gospel and that you live out the gospel, and that's where true change begins. It's Jesus Christ who changes hearts, and he has been changing hearts ever since the beginning of time, and it's Jesus Christ to whom we give all the glory. Let's pray. Lord, help us in our weakness of faith to be strengthened to say, I too have followed, decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. Help us increase our faith so that we too can say, though no one joins me, still I will follow. Help us to also proclaim the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. Let's pray at this time. And let's take this time to really repent.
turn back to God if you have been far away from Him. We've looked to things. We've looked to people. We've looked to movements. But that is not where salvation lies. It's only in Christ Jesus. And may the Holy Spirit guide your heart and give you the peace that only God can give. And let's turn to Him in prayer now.